Well, at the risk of losing our forward momentum in John's Gospel, I'd like to take a week and develop the application that I ended with last week. I actually received numerous comments, all of them positive actually, about the application of last week's sermon and also some suggestions. I needed to come back and develop it a little bit more, so I thought, well, I had better do that. So here's the question I asked last week. Why did the Jewish leadership fail to embrace Jesus as the Christ? As we worked through John's Gospel, it was evident they just kept on rejecting him. Well, why? We often chide the Jews for not knowing that Jesus was God. But that charge is perhaps too simplistic. John the Baptist and the disciples who struggled with Jesus also, I should say, struggled with Jesus' true identity. John asked, are you he that should come, or do we look for another? In Luke 18, Jesus revealed the truth of his death and resurrection for the third time. And Luke says the disciples understood none of these things. In John 14, in the upper room, Philip still did not understand Jesus' relationship with the Father. Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? And that was certainly true of other disciples as well. And that's the upper room. So if the Jews' problem was simply a failure to understand Jesus' true identity, then John the Baptist and the disciples are equally guilty. But the disciples never sought to kill Jesus. The disciples had enough faith to hold on to Jesus long enough to see mysteries resolved. They may have stumbled in disbelief, but they always came back. However, something in the Jewish religious culture drove the Jewish leadership to make multiple attempts on Jesus' life one of which finally succeeded. And what was it? Did bad theology drive the Pharisees to murder Jesus? And if so, how can we avoid any contamination of that same bad theology from creeping into our churches? I suggested last week that the Jews' problem was rooted in the very name Pharisee. The term comes from the Aramaic term for a separatist. That's what a Pharisee was. He was a separatist. If that's the case, there is such a thing as separatism misapplied. And I do believe in separatism. But there's got to be such a thing as separatism misapplied Because the Pharisees were guilty of it. Now let me be clear that my goal is not to turn the UBC pulpit into some sort of platform for launching a diatribe against fundamentalism or something like that, All right, That's not my intention at all. I did, however, grow up in a very fundamentalist culture, and it emphasized separatism, and I think sometimes to an extreme. My childhood pastor was a prominent member of the Fundamental Baptist Fellowship, and I am actually quite grateful for what I learned from him. That man baptized me. I received an excellent education at BJU during the 1990s, but I will say that second semester Bible doctrines in those days was almost exclusively devoted to the doctrine of separatism. 
whole, whole semester on separatism. I actually don't recall any balanced teaching on unity, and I could have missed it. Uh, my doctoral advisor quite literally wrote the textbook on fundamentalism, and I owe much of my passion for church history to this man. And our church has historically been associated with fundamentalist organizations and institutions. So I'm really, I'm, I'm not on the warpath at all against fundamentalism. I don't want you to think that. But I do want to ask the question, do we have a correct view of separatism? We've, we've got to be very, very careful about this. In John's gospel, hostility toward Jesus has actually been building since the beginning of his ministry. Why was it the Jewish leadership failed to understand the Incarnation? Last week I pointed out that the Pharisees actually had a problem. And that problem was rooted in their high view of God. They had an extraordinarily high view of God. And so did you. If you had only the Old Testament where Yahweh thundered warnings off the roof of Sinai not to approach His dreadful presence, where Yahweh forbade even Moses from looking on His face, where Yahweh struck a man dead for touching the ark, where Yahweh's presence filled the temple so even Solomon could not go in, would you have guessed that the glorious, all-powerful Yahweh would have revealed Himself in the face of a mere mortal? Would you have known that the suffering servant who numbers himself with those transgressors was Yahweh? Well, that sounds blasphemous. Would you have guessed that Yahweh in the person of Jesus Christ was made sin for us? That doesn't sound right. Even the bright angels were stunned by God's death on the cross. It was a mystery, Paul says. Paul uses the term mystery to describe the person and actions of Jesus Christ precisely because it wasn't clear in the Old Testament. So friends, the Jews misunderstood Jesus. That is true, but not because they had a low view of God. They had an extraordinarily high view of God, which we also should have a high view of God. But if you want to be effective in evangelizing Orthodox Jews or Muslims, it's really crucial that you understand this distinction. Neither accept the incarnation of God in human flesh, but not because they have a low view of God, precisely the opposite. They have an extraordinarily high view of God. The God of the Old Testament is utterly holy. He is separated from His fallen creation. His presence slays the unrighteous. And you ought to have a high view of God because it has to be utterly separated from human sin. So where do they go wrong? Well, we'll come to that today. The Jews do have a theological problem. And I want to turn to Matthew 23 before going back to John's Gospel. I want to first of all discover a manifestation of their problem. The Jews' problem is the identical problem that has crept into 
numerous movements in the long history of the church. I think it's safe to say that nearly every movement that defines itself by separation ends in heresy. I think I can defend that, although I'll not do that today. The problem concerns an attempt to make God's holiness his central defining attribute and then to conflate holiness with God's separateness. Holiness and separateness become virtually synonymous terms. And then here's what happens next. God's holiness is his central identity, therefore holiness is separateness. Therefore, to be like God is to make separation the defining characteristic of Judaism or Christianity. The Pharisees were the preeminent separatists of Jesus' day. And they believed that through separation, they could be like God. And to achieve this separateness, they drew up very detailed laws and standards. And they created a whole religious culture, a delicate ecosystem, in which departing from any one law was like introducing a predatory species. The Pharisees lived in this kind of theological biosphere in which we dare not admit any outside oxygen without contaminating the whole thing. If they were to permit any cultural change or allow differences of preferences or compromise any law whatsoever, their whole faith would just be contaminated. So you can't allow for that. And in Matthew 23, Jesus is going to walk right into that culture and he's going to interact with it. Look, for example, at verse 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, guides straining out a gnat, and swallowing a camel. Well, Jesus' statement condemns the scribes and Pharisees for becoming fixated on minute legal regulations while missing the entire point of the law. The scribes and Pharisees tithe even their little herbs, little sprigs of dill. They flaunted their own self-righteousness in doing so. They were more concerned with mathematical precision in tithing herbs, more concerned with that than in using the tithe or the agricultural produce to show justice, justice for the orphan, mercy to the widow, or faithfully relieving the burden of the stranger. Here they are, they're counting their leaves under the golden colonnades of the temple. And back in the street is the widow groveling in the street. In verse 24, Jesus uses a humorous Semitic idiom to belittle the scribes and Pharisees' blatant imbalance. Ever had a bug fly into your mouth? It gets down in your throat. Well, your instinctive reaction is to cough and to spit and try to eject it from your mouth. Well, a little gnat won't do you much harm, a little bit of protein, right? But imagine just swallowing a whole camel. If you did that, you're dead. That's the largest animal in the Middle East. That would be lethal. 
Well, Jesus' point is clear. It's easy to pridefully fixate on minutia. We got it all right, even the things that are not required by Scripture, and really miss the important things. We've all heard phrases like, let the main thing be the main thing. Remember Brother Noel Garvin, he used to always say that. Let the main thing be the main thing. Or major in the majors and minor in the minors. Well, actually, Jesus is validating, validating those statements right there in verses 23 and 24. That actually is scriptural. Let the main thing be the main thing. But to really make this passage applicable, pay very careful attention to the end of verse 23. Jesus says, These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, the law did not require tithing herbs. In Deuteronomy 14 and verse 22, Moses wrote, You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And Moses specifically commands tithing grain and wine and oil. Why? Well, these agricultural produce could actually bring justice to the orphan who's hungry because he's been forsaken by his parents. They could show mercy to the starving widow who has nothing to eat. Well, herbs like mint and dill and cumin, they're not going to keep anybody alive. And so they're not required in the tithe. So when Jesus says, these you ought to have done, he means you've missed the important things like justice and mercy, like caring for orphans and caring for widows. Those are the important things. But wait a minute, why does Jesus add this line in verse 23, without neglecting the others? His meaning is, you don't have to neglect the things that you're doing, like tithing herbs. If you feel compelled to tithe herbs, go do it. Go do it, no problem. But those aren't the main thing. That's what he's saying. In other words, he says you ought to show justice and mercy and faithfulness. But if you want to go beyond that and tie little things like herbs and do those kinds of things, no problem. Go ahead and do it. So what's the problem? The Pharisees' problem was a distorted perspective that focused on minutiae. They obsessed over personal preferences and regulations and they missed all the important things. They swallowed a camel while ejecting a gnat. So again, to be clear, Jesus is saying it's okay to have personal preferences. Again, if you want to tithe herbs, go do it. But the whole point of the law was that you need a fundamental change of heart. And when your heart has been changed, then you're going to go out and start caring for widows and orphans. You're going to go out and start promoting justice and mercy and faithfulness. But if you're going to sit around and just pridefully flaunt your own preferences like tithing herbs, you've really just you've missed the whole point. That's what he's saying. Now, friends, we do indeed have people in this church, right here in this room, who have convictions about all kinds of things, including myself. And guess what? We don't all line up. And that's perfectly fine. Live out your convictions. But unless we keep the main thing the main thing, we, would, we will divide the church unnecessarily, Right? And I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worried about that at the moment, by the way, all right? But I, I think we've, we've done a pretty good job of keeping the main thing the main thing. But in Christian circles, it is easy to take our own personal convictions and cultural preferences and to really elevate them to supreme importance. And actually, why does that happen? 
that can happen through, are you ready for this? A high view of God. I have a high view of God, therefore I, just, I can't do this thing in my conscience. Why? Because I would just bother my relationship with God. Well, don't do it. If God is holy, transcendent, set apart from his creation, right? Well, then we do become like God by practicing separation from the world. That is good. But how far can you take that? Can you get down to the level where you're tithing mint and herbs and you're not worried about the important things? That's where we've got to be cautious. So, I, I don't think that we have any issue here with tithing mint. But let's talk about music. Let's talk about music because music was a really, really, really big deal in the culture that I grew up in. I just felt like there was a never-ending discussion about music. In fact, if you didn't live in that culture, it's actually quite difficult to understand. And so I'm going to say some things, and some of you are going to be like, what on earth? Right? Others of you are going to be like, yeah, I totally get it. Right? Because I know you come from many different backgrounds, and you all come here, right? Some of you are going to be like, I totally get it. And others of you are going to be like, what is he talking about? Seriously? All right? Let's take percussion and music, which you do find in Scripture, by the way. In the culture that I grew up in, the use of a drum was entirely inappropriate, offensive to the ears of God. In the incident of the golden calf where people danced before the idol, there, were, there was a sound of war in the camp. And since drums were used to stir people up to war, and war is associated with the golden calf, then a holy God just cannot tolerate any kind of percussion. I mean, actually, I was taught that. To be holy means to remove all percussion from the camp. Further, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord, means I better disassociate with any Christian organization or church who disagrees with me. Be standoffish. Now, there was an exception clause. If you want to use kettle drums, it's true. If you want to use kettle drums twice a year for an Easter and Christmas cantata, that's kosher. That's a different kind of drum. And if you use it on a limited basis, it's therefore okay. I was taught this. What about the other instruments? Well, in the culture that I grew up in, we actually laughed at those silly reformers who didn't allow organs in their churches. Why? Those organs were associated with Catholicism. I mean, really? That's just ridiculous. Come on. You can have an organ in the church. Pianos were the most godly instrument, even though 100 years ago, many Western churches forbade their use because they were used in the saloons. Again, get over that already. Piano's okay. But a guitar, a guitar was generally thought to be bad, except around the campfire for a youth outing if no piano was available. Like if you went on a hayride, you went way up in the mountains, okay, then bring a guitar. Otherwise, you have to have a piano. Now, if that, if that, if that guitar plugged into a speaker, though, that was really worldly. But you could put a microphone to the piano, not a problem. It didn't stop there. There was enormous discussion about whose music you could and could not sing. If the song was more than 50 years old or written by Fanny Crosby, it was safe, regardless, regardless of her moral failings, and she did have moral failings. Anything more modern was suspect unless it was included in the Wilds hymn book. 
Am I, am I right about that? I mean, this is the way it was. Now, now, here at this church, Fred Coleman led music for many, many years. And actually, for many, he was considered just a little bit too edgy. Sorry, Fred. Now, singing a song written by the Gettys was compromise. Seriously, it was compromised because they had new evangelical associations. Nevertheless, I'd rather have Jesus by George Beverly Shea, who sang for Billy Graham Crusades, was perfectly okay. Leading music from the piano instead of the pulpit was a slippery slope. That's just a little bit too trite. Now, I know you're laughing, but I'm not actually making any of this up. I'm I'm not a word of this is made up. That is quite literally the church culture that I grew up in. And I appreciate those people for trying to be very careful. You know, that's okay. I understand that. But if you don't understand it, it's because you didn't live inside the biosphere, right? Let's think about clothing as a second example. The Bible, of course, does speak clearly to the issue of modesty. You ought to be modest. You ought not draw attention to yourself. All right? But it is possible to elevate personal standards of modesty and decency and dress out of proportion to weightier matters. When you can recall 30 sermons on modesty and none on adoption or fostering, well, that strikes me as a problem. In the 80s, it was rare for women to wear pants. And I've known people who believe a woman should always wear a hat to church. I had a professor at BGU who always wore gloves to church by conviction. I know a brother who, by conviction, always wears his best suit when taking communion out of reverence for a holy God. That's fine. And I know a brother who wears old clothes to communion to communicate poverty of spirit. And that's totally fine. Go back a century and you'll discover convictions that actually, to our ears, sound absurd. The great English pastor, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, lamented the changes he saw creeping into his church in the 1920s. He laments, I cannot possibly understand a man who wears colored socks, rings, wristwatches, shoes instead of boots, or who carries a cane in his hand. He also preached against radios and bathtubs in your houses. Go back three centuries to Jonathan Edwards' day, and you'll find Christian men wearing powdered wigs and stockings by conviction. Let's just admit it. Jonathan Edwards' hair was really weird. His wig looks exactly like the way my grandmother did her hair for years. I'd I'd love to meet the guy, and I'd say, dude, I mean, your theology is great. You look like my grandma. Five centuries ago, Martin Luther wrote, Fur and head coverings are women's most attractive and honorable and most genuine and most necessary adornment. You have to wear fur to come to church, ladies. I grew up in a culture that spent a great deal of time trying to figure out where exactly the line was on a woman's knee that the skirt had to reach. If you go up a little bit, you're a new evangelical. If you go down, you're a fundamentalist. And I, I actually don't know where exactly that line is. It's probably different for different people and with different consciences. That's why I don't try to draw a line anywhere, right? But for many Christian women in parts of the world like India and Africa, uh, actually covering their calves is very important, but letting her belly show, no big deal. I had a friend from India my freshman year at BJU, and her parents were wonderful, godly people, but they thought that she came to BJU and became worldly. Why? Because she covered her belly and let her calves show. I mean, that skirt only went down to her knees. She was worldly. 
That actually happened. So, friends, again, we all need a heart. We need a heart that desires modesty and holiness in the sight of God. I don't question that at all, right? We need that. We need to teach our kids that. That is absolutely true, right? Have a heart that reflects your love for God. But, but some of these matters really have to be left to individual consciences. And what's most important is that we really continually devote ourselves to the main thing. Let the main thing be the main thing, like carrying out the Great Commission. So think about our missionaries, Russ and Lynn Turner. They had devoted themselves to planning more than 30 churches, more than 30 churches in the jungles of Costa Rica and surrounding countries. They've done a phenomenal job. They are our longest supported missionaries in the field at this point. And did you know that Lynn Turner is a concert pianist? Lynn Turner, when you see her, I mean, she's just so, so, so refined and so dignified, you know? She just seems like such a wonderful lady. It's actually very difficult to imagine her venturing up a crocodile-infested river in a canoe, leaving civilization behind for weeks on end, but that's exactly what they do. She sleeps in a hammock to keep from being bitten by snakes at night. That's her life. She cooks over an open fire in the bush. That's her life. But did you know that the Turner's former mission board required her to wear a skirt or a dress when venturing into the jungle? And Brother Russ just said, look, that's not going to work. And they left the mission board. And I applaud them for doing so because that's tithing mint and dill and cumin and neglecting the weightier matters like reaching the Indians with the gospel. We, we, we raised a huge amount of money to help the Turners plant churches in Costa Rica. And other Christians were separating from them because she wouldn't wear a skirt and a canoe. Now turn to John 5, and let me ask a question. John 5. How do you reach a point where you obsess over women's clothing, even when they're going to the jungle? With the precise sound of the percussion, like kettle drums are okay, but any other kind of drum, not so good. Or the moral character of the composer, or the associations of the Gettys. I mean, how do you get to that point? Actually, all of that and more can come from a very high view of God. So let's protect God's holiness and let's regulate all of our behaviors and associations to really protect God's holiness. And again, there there may be a point to some of this, especially in our own consciences as we live out our lives in God's sight, right? But we've got to be very, very careful that we don't get off balance. And this is precisely what happened with the Pharisees. And dare I say, nearly every movement in church history that defined itself exclusively by separatism. The Pharisees kept all the holiness laws, tie their mint and dill and cumin. Don't take a step too far on the Sabbath. Refrain from all work on the Sabbath. Wash your hands properly before eating. And they had elaborate ceremonies for hand washing. Preserve and protect the culture at all costs. Otherwise, you have compromised God's holiness, God's identity, and God's separateness. So what do you do with a rabbi who associates with sinners, who deliberately heals on the Sabbath, who doesn't wash his hands properly, who dines with the publicans? Jesus deliberately and repeatedly disrupted the holiness culture of the Pharisees. 
He very intentionally does this. Remember John 5? Jesus deliberately healed a man on the Sabbath. Look at verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, if that man has been an invalid for 38 years, all right, obviously this was not a life and death emergency situation. 38 years. So surely Jesus could have waited one more day. Just wait one day, Jesus. But he didn't. Jesus deliberately transgressed the Pharisees' Sabbath laws. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So what do you do with a man who so deliberately breaks the holiness culture of the Pharisees? Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What do you do with a guy? Kill the man who breaks the Sabbath. But what is Jesus doing? What he's doing here is giving attention to the weightier matters of the law, like mercy. Go have mercy on this man. He's been there for 38 years. And again and again and again, Jesus heals deliberately on the Sabbath. He was not afraid to disrupt that holiness culture because he knew it was misconstrued. Turn to John 9. Here again, Jesus heals a man whose situation was not a life and death emergency situation at all. In verse 1, we're told the man was born blind. And later in the passage, verse 21, the man's parents referred to him as being of age, which is probably a reference to his adulthood. He's, this guy's an adult. He's been blind for a very long time. So when did Jesus heal the man? Verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Surely Jesus would have waited one more day. I mean, come on, Jesus, just one more day. You know, this is not life-threatening. The guy's gotten along as a blind person for years and years and years. He's okay. Give him one more day. But he doesn't. He heals the man immediately. Why? Because this is a weightier matter of the law, showing mercy. Well, could the Pharisees appreciate God's mercy? No. And why not? Verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. No possibility of that. Well, why not? For he does not keep the Sabbath. At all costs, protect the Sabbath. The very holiness of God is at stake. Don't compromise the culture of Judaism. To compromise the culture is to undermine the character and the holiness of Israel's God. That's how the Pharisees were thinking. Separateness must be maintained at all costs. Stone the rabbi. Nail him to a cross. But let's return to the question I asked last week. Before God created the world, from whom was he separated? If we, like the Pharisees, make holiness God's defining attribute and then define holiness as separation from his fallen creation, 
Was God holy or separated from his fallen creation before there was a creation? If God is permanently and eternally holy, in the sense of separated, then he must always have something to separate from, and that leads straight into the Gnostic heresy. The Gnostic heresy views God as a pure spirit who is permanently separated from the material world. And once you've adopted that Gnostic posture, the whole doctrine of the Incarnation crumbles. Gnosticism says God cannot and will not contaminate himself with humanity or with that physical, material world down there. He is eternally holy and separated from that material world. What do you do with the Incarnation? For the Pharisees, there was no possible way that Yahweh was enfleshed in Jesus of Nazareth. And why not? Because Yahweh would never disrupt the Jewish holiness culture. The Jews believed that Yahweh would never heal on the Sabbath. He would never allow his disciples to pluck grain on the Sabbath. No way. Yahweh would never dine without properly washing his hands. He would never skip a fast or allow his disciples to forgo a fast. He would never talk with an immoral woman at a well in Samaria. In fact, he would never help a centurion. Why? Yahweh was an Israeli nationalist. Yahweh would never recline at table with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees knew better. In Matthew 9 and verse 11, they asked Jesus' disciples how their teacher could do such a thing. I mean, he's with those sinners at the table. He won't do that. Yahweh would never do this. He's holy. If you think about the Pharisees, they are the religious Gestapo of the first century. I mean, you watch them carefully. That's what they're doing. Listen to Mark 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Not to see whether he would help a person. No, no, no. We're going to watch him and see if he's actually going to do this on the Sabbath. That's the issue. So they might accuse him. When Jesus healed the man, the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. doesn't matter if he's helping somebody. No, is he doing it on the Sabbath? I'm going to break one of our rules. The fact is, friends, you can never, ever win with a Pharisee unless you totally submit to his culture. Just fall in step with the religious superiors and don't ask any questions. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11, 18 through 19? Here's what he said. This is kind of shocking. For John, that is John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, good luck trying to please these people. John is too ascetic and Jesus is too worldly. You can't please these guys. Doesn't, doesn't Jesus know all of the dietary rules? He doesn't follow our drinking regulations. Look at the people he associates with. That, that, that tells you everything you need to know about Jesus. right? He, he's just too worldly, they think. But again, understand the Pharisees' theology was actually rooted in a very high view of God. By all means, just protect the holiness of God. So where's the problem? Because again, friends, if you told me to protect God's holiness, 
and to live a godly, holy lifestyle, I would say, okay, that sounds right. Right? Doesn't that sound right to you? That sounds exactly right to me. That sounds like what sanctification is all about. Protect the holiness of God. Live a godly, holy lifestyle. Refrain from sin. Depart from the world. I understand that. So where exactly is the problem? And here's where we have to be very, very precise. If we make holiness God's central defining attribute, then we imply that God has in some sense always been separated from evil, but this would make evil as old as God. And again, that's pure Gnosticism. In eternity past, God was not separated from anyone. And God's identity was not bound up in his separation from evil because there was no evil to separate from. So don't, don't, don't define God as the opposite of evil for all of eternity. There's nothing there. There's no evil. It's not as old as God. How then do we understand God? Keeping in mind that indeed he is a holy God who's separated from evil ever since it invaded our creation. God is holy. He is separate from sin. That is true. But what really is there at the center? Well, turn back now at long last to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And let's observe that God's eternal identity is not bound up in some sort of holy separation from someone else. Actually, that would be impossible because who would God have separated from? There's only two other members of the Trinity here, right? You know, we're going to separate from one of them? Jesus is going to pick up on his relationship with the Father at the end of verse 38, where he says, The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And that was true in the first century, and it has been true from eternity past. Jesus is one with the Father. And Jesus has just kept on saying that to the Jews over and over and over again, and the Jews keep trying to kill him. Look back at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Or verse 39. They again sought to arrest him. I'm one with the Father. Okay, kill him. Now when we arrive in John 14, Jesus will formally introduce to us the Holy Spirit. He was also part of that holy Trinitarian relationship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Three distinct persons, one God. But what lies at the center of that mutual co-inherence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What's at the center of that relationship? What lies at the heart of their interpersonal relationship from all eternity is not separation. What lies at the heart is love. Perfect, holy love. God is love. It was perfect love at the heart of God's Trinitarian identity that actually incarnated one member of the Trinity into human history to rescue us from our sin, from our misery, from our destruction. And that's why Jesus says in John 10 and verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. And that's what the separated Pharisees just kept on missing their quest for holiness. They couldn't see it. They could not comprehend the eternal, Trinitarian, holy love of God that reached out and brought a fallen creation into their embrace of the Incarnation. They couldn't see it. So yes, the Old Testament is clear. God is holy, 
separate from sin, unapproachable, lethal in His presence, separated from His fallen creation. That is all true. But when you absolutize God's separateness, we're refusing to, re, to, to balance it with the incarnation, the love of Christ. You become a Pharisee who cannot embrace Yahweh when He's just standing there right in front of you. You can't see it. There He is. He's fulfilling the weightier matters of the law like mercy and justice and faithfulness. What do you do with the guy? You kill him. When you absolutize God's separateness, you embrace Islam, rejecting the incarnation of God, hanging on a cross to save us from our sins. It's exactly the problem with Islam. When you absolutize God's holiness, detaching it from incarnational love, you embrace Phariseeism, fastidiously keeping all your rules while failing to recognize your own need for grace and the need to show it to others. When you absolutize God's separateness, even as a Christian, you can slip into pride, into a legalistic approach to sanctification that holds everyone up to your standards and your delicate little ecosystem that you have created for yourself. And friends, this is, I think, really most damaging. When you absolutize God's separateness, you can engage in a kind of cold evangelism. Cold evangelism just stands there at arm's length from the sinner. And it welcomes him into the church, but only after he's been cleaned up. I mean, by all means, keep the church pure. It is a sanctuary, after all, right? I mean, just keep it pure. right? So make sure that man gets a haircut, takes off his earrings, destroys his CD collection, covers up his tattoo, and then, and only then, you can begin to disciple him in the church. That's that kind of cold evangelism. Make sure that woman doesn't come to church in shorts or wear a nose ring or have any questions about her sexuality. And then, and then, then you can you know, bring her in and start discipling her. And friends, in that kind of hyper-separatist culture, holiness is no longer the outcome of discipleship. It's the prerequisite to entering the church. Let me say that again. In a hyper-separatist culture, holiness is no longer the outcome of disciplesness in the church, it's the prerequisite to entering the church. And one wonders what would have happened if Jesus brought all of his friends from Zacchaeus' house over to the local Baptist church in Jericho. Ever imagine that? Like, here I am, here's all my friends, let's, let's go to the local Baptist church. Here we are. All right? What if Jesus brought all of his young friends to your local church or your local university for discipleship? We actually have faculty members from four different universities who come to our church. Are we prepared to disciple new believers who don't currently and may never fit our particular ecclesiastical culture? I have learned many, many things from Pastor Joseph in my time here, but he has reminded us again and again so often that when you evangelize cross-culturally, when you do that, you quickly discover what's essential and what's not. That is so crucial. So this is the question that every generation of Christians faces. Will will you just preserve your culture at all costs because you're not a compromiser? right? Or will you disciple a new generation in Christian love? Teaching them that the holy love of God has something to say in every culture at all times. So let me say this again. In a hyper-separatist culture, holiness is no longer the outcome of discipleship in the church. It's the prerequisite to entering the church. Is, is that the kind of church we want to have? 
Or do we want to have a church that reaches out to people in Christian love and says, look, we're all in this together. We're all fallen. We're all broken. We all fall short of the glory of God. Now come on over here and let's help each other grow in grace. Shall we pray? Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that these words would be helpful. Lord, anything that I've said that's an error, I pray, Lord, that it would not confuse anybody's thinking this morning. I'm sure, Lord, if I were to go back and listen to the sermon, read my manuscript a month or two from now, I might find things that I wanted to say more clearly, might find some things to correct. I don't know, Lord. But I pray, Lord, that whatever I've said that is biblical, that is true, and that you approve of, I ask that your Spirit would really convict us of those things and change our hearts and change our lives through them. Lord, as we approach this table, I pray that each and every one of us would examine ourselves and that we would indeed desire personal holiness, desire separation from sin, but at the same time, Lord, desire Christ-likeness and our willingness to show mercy, justice, and faithfulness to people all around us who are in need. And help us, Lord, to make the main thing the main thing. I encourage you just to keep your head bowed and eyes closed there for just a few more minutes as our deacons come. Just examine your own heart and just ask the Lord to Get your focus on the main thing, right? It's easy after a sermon like this to start pointing the finger at everybody else and think about somebody else or some other church or some other movement. Really, we need to look at our own hearts and examine our own hearts as we prepare for communion now.